Hello and welcome to a new season of Off the Page, the podcast from International Literature Festival Dublin. For this episode, we're revisiting a hugely popular event from the 2017 programme, Werner Herzog, in conversation with Carlo Gabler at Dublin's National Concert Hall. Hi. Uh, my name's Carlo Gabler. This is Werner Herzog. And he is a writer and a filmmaker. And those of you who are alert to sequencing will notice I said a writer and a filmmaker. Nothing happens in cinema unless it's written down. But he's, so he's written scripts and proposals and all those kinds of things, but also he is a writer, published a number of books, uh, one of which I recently read and will refer to in the course of this discussion, A Guide to the Perplex, for the Perplex, which is um, an absolutely incredible book. It appears to be oral. It is a book of talk, ostensibly, but it's been really beautifully polished and burnished. It's been combed through. There isn't a single kink in it. But it does have one repetition, deliberate repetition, which I shall, I shall, um, I shall come to. And we are here today, tonight, to talk about literature. And I was sent um, some information by, by Vern about some of the texts that have caught his attention and which we, will, which, which we will touch upon in the course of the evening's discussion. But I thought I'd start off by reading you one of your poems. Okay. May I do that? Yes, okay. It's a very, very... <laughs> I'm, it's, I'm open for surprises. <laughs> it's a very, very short poem. Yes, okay. Um, and it's called Rain in the Face. Yeah. He will be reading later, don't worry. At age 72, after eating a yogurt, my grandfather put aside his spoon and lost his mind. In the garden, he sang songs for the Beatles and called himself Rudolph the Bear. He learned sweet bear songs. Before, he had a suit and a cane and often stood up for law and order. His colleagues were called, I'm going to get this part wrong, Nagel Ilman Moore. At that time, my favorite Indian was no longer alive. He was called rain in the face, and died at Little Bighorn. His father was named Kicking Bear, and his mother, White Cow Seas. I loved all of these poems. They reminded me, they were very short and clear. They were like woodcuts. And this poem I picked because it seemed to refer to your background, the humus yeah. from which you sprang. So, Tell us a little bit about it, who yes, you are. It, it does, and uh, in the short uh, time we had together before this discourse, uh, I noticed uh, that you have a, different, have a similar sort of um, life that informs your own writings. 
for example, your uh, work in the prison system. And of course, it probably has much more value than any two, three, four years in university. And <laughs> in my case, <clears throat> in my case, it refers to my grandfather, Rudolf, who, uh, whom I only pretty much know when he was insane already. Um, and he used to be an archaeologist, did his life's work on a Greek island and found, discovered and excavated the Asclepiaion on the island of Kos. And he was a, a very adventurous young man, actually. He was a dean of uh, classic uh, languages uh, at university at the age of 28 or 29. And then all of a sudden dropped everything uh, left university and shouldered a spade and went to Greece and actually found he had an impeccable eye for, uh, for landscapes. Where would I build a temple? Where would I build uh, a health resort? Where would the Romans, uh, for example, build a, a, a bath? And wherever he dug, there was something. And um, in a way, I always had much closer relationship to my own grandfather than to my father, who was pretty much absent from the family anyway. And it was pleasant that my brother and I, or my brothers and I, grew up uh, without the presence of a father. And we grew up in the mountains, in the most remote mountain valley, which was significantly safer than the city of Munich, which was bombarded, carpet bombarded, when I was only two weeks old. And my mother found me there under, in my uh, cradle under about a foot of glass shards and bricks and debris, but I was unhurt, and she fled to the mountains. And my reference was pretty much always my, my grandfather. And uh, we were uh, terrible as children. Sometimes uh, my brother and I would uh, hide behind the hedge, and we would shout out to my grandfather and say and shout out, I have to say it in German, Herr Prof, because it rhymes, Herr Professor Menschenfresser, Mr. Professor Cannibal, only because it rhymed and he would come after us. <laughs> he would come after us and we would climb up the birch tree and he couldn't reach us there yeah, until my grandmother... Your poor grandfather. Yeah, and, and of course, uh, even poorer because he was demented and... Uh, <laughs> and <laughs> No, it's, it's kind of tragic because uh, he, for example, would not um, recognize his own wife anymore. He married when she was 19, a wonderful, I had a wonderful grandmother, and, and he courted her briefly and took her to Greece, and they married immediately, and, and they lived all their lives together every day, and they, they loved each other dearly, and he did not recognize her more, and he would say, very politely always address her as madam. And, uh, but one day, and my grandmother told me about this, one uh, day he dressed up very formally and he would uh, put his spoon and fork into place and he would stand up and he would say, madam, if I were not married, I would ask for your hand. And it's really heartbreaking, very beautiful. And um, so, and of course, uh, 
He um, was fluent in modern Greek and, of course, fluent in reading ancient Greek. He would read sometimes ancient Greek, and that has been something I hated in school, but recently or much later I, I rediscovered. And uh, today, I'm, for example, I'm reading an obscure uh, Greek author, Diodorus Siculus, Diodorus of Sicily, um, who is pretty much a sheep. He's really stupid, more an encyclopedist. But one part of his writing about uh, the father of Alexander the Great, Philip II of Macedon, is absolutely detailed and informed, and it's the greatest of all soap operas. It's incredible. You have the ability to speak many languages, and you read ancient Greek. Yeah, well, uh, not perfectly. Uh, quite often I, I have a bilingual edition, and I read in, try to read in, in Greek, and then if I do not get a word, instead of looking yes. through the dictionary, I, I look on, on the parallel page and, and I find, oh, this is badly translated. It's, it's yeah. uh... <laughs> <laughs> were, were you a happy schoolboy? No, I, I hated school so, with such profound hatred that uh, I seriously planned to burn it to the ground. <laughs> Um, and I had an, an elaborate plan to, to do it uh, at three in the morning when nobody was in jeopardy. Um, I didn't do it for whatever reasons uh, unknown to me. I didn't follow through. Uh, normally, I'm a, I'm a person who follows through. Yes. But not in this case. I think that's probably quite good that you didn't follow through in this case. And I, I always distrusted uh, textbooks, I distrusted teachers, and I'm completely self-taught. I'm really a classical case of being self-taught. No teachers at all? Uh, I dislike them all. You dislike them all? Yeah, yeah. When I was reading Guide for the Perplexed, yeah. there was... Um, uh, this is a slight segue. There was a very interesting, disturbing account about, being f about what the school did to you and the experience of music. And yeah, well, that's, uh, things like this happen. I, I will give a short account. Uh, every one of us has uh, gone through a small school tragedy or so. In my case, I was forced when I was 13 or 14, I was forced to sing in front of the class at the end of the school year. And at that time, there was this silly theory, everybody has some musical talent, maybe not that big, and not so. Uh, and I had to sing, everybody else has, had to sing, and I refused, and, and I was very obstinate, and I said, you can do the somersault forwards and backwards, and I'm not going to sing. You can climb up to the ceiling, and I'm not going to sing. And I held it, they called the principal, and they were discussing f f throwing me out of school altogether um, in front of the class. And now, what was really nasty, they took the class hostage. They said, nobody of you kids is leaving out for intermission or this room ever until he sings. So my friends nudged me and they said, we don't listen, and it's okay. 
I held out almost one hour, and I knew they... <laughs> yes, because it was, it was obvious they wanted to break my back. And because of all the classmates who urged me on, I, I actually sang, and I knew I would never sing <clears throat> in my life, which uh, I haven't done so far, with the exception of happy birthday. But uh, that was about that. But the, the pain is still somehow like a distant echo in me. And, and I thought to myself, nobody will ever break my back again in my life. It's not going to happen. And it hasn't happened. People broke my teeth, for example. <laughs> not, not my back. But not your back. Yeah. Um, one of the in, in, texts that you um, alluded to uh, when we were talking before and in the email I got was the Oxford English Dictionary, the 20 volume. Yes, I mean, this... It's, it's uh, yes, yeah. it would break your back if you had to carry it. Yeah. Why, what, what, why is it such an important book to you? Because in here you it, say, on it, a desert island, it's the one you'd have. It's a book of books, yes. It's inexhaustible. And it has, uh, we, we have to face it, I, I would say something like 10,000 scholars contributed over 150 years, roughly, to uh, collect every single word that was ever written down as a manuscript or print or, or whatever, and every single shade through all the ages from Beowulf onwards is stored in there, and you can open it wherever you want, and you get carried away by an ocean of depth of language, and in the history of language, and, and where, where language comes from, and how it e evolves, and how uh, certain words uh, acquire new different meanings. When, when you look under, under wretch, for example, it's just wonderful to read it all. I'm fascinated by words like runt, the puny runt. <laughs> Napoleon, the puny runt, fled from Elba and made it back to, to France. But the word runt has a, a different shadow of, 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 of difference in 1802 or whatever in the Cornwall uh, uh, manual for pig breeders. And you just need to know that. <laughs> and it's just too, too good, too good to be true. And uh, um, of course, since everything uh, is moving more into, into the area of, um, uh, of, of the digital world and in and, and very short, texting and uh, in things, messages like this, YouTube, Facebook, uh, Twitter, and so I, I love the Oxford English Dictionary even more. And sometimes there's something like um, uh, times where there's a vortex of words that, is, that keeps me prisoner and I can't get it out. Like sometimes it happens to others, I notice that uh, that a song, as stupid as it may be, doesn't leave their, their ear. Mm. And they are going on and on and on in, into this song and they cannot escape from it. And it has happened with you with words. And uh, maybe I should read from, yes. 
there's one conquest of the useless which I wrote while I was uh, doing the film Fitzcarraldo. It's, uh, and, and it was in form of diaries, but most of it is, in fact, uh, fever dreams in the jungle, and much of it invented, of course. And uh, it um, melted down, my longhand melted down into microscopic sort of script. Why, I don't know, probably because of the phenomenal pressure on me we had every day a catastrophe. I mean, not movie catastrophes, real ones. Mm -hmm. Two plane crashes. My uh, camp that I had built for 1,100 extras in the middle of the jungle was attacked and burned to the ground. We ran into a border war. Um, I shot half the film and had to reshoot everything from scratch again. And here I'm uh, describing at the, at the end of the of the text, um, uh, when I returned to the place where I had moved a 360-ton ship over a mountain in the jungle without real technology, very, very primitive, almost Neolithic sort of, of technology, the way the meniers and the dolmens uh, here in the country, that's basically the technology. Um, and I returned to the place where I had uh, where I had moved the ship over the mountain. On Rio Camisea, I, I, I read this short passage to you. It was midday and very still. I looked around because everything was so motionless. I recognized the jungle as something familiar, something I had inside me, and I knew that I loved it, yet against my better judgment. Then words came back to me, that had been circling, swirling inside me through all those years. Harken, heifer, hoarfrost, denizens of the crag, will-o'-the-wisp, hogwash, uncouth, floatsam, fiend. Only now did it seem as though I would escape from the vortex of words. Something struck me, a change that actually was not a change at all. I had simply not noticed it when I was working there. There had been an odd tension hovering over the huts, a brooding hostility. The native families hardly had any contact with each other, as if a feud reigned among them. But I had always overlooked that somehow, or denied it. Only the children had played together. Now, as I made my way past the huts and asked for directions, it was hardly possible to get one family to acknowledge another. The seething hatred was undeniable, as if something like a climate of vengeance prevailed from hut to hut, from family to family, from clan to clan. I looked around, and there was a jungle manifesting the same seething hatred, wrathful and steaming, while the river flowed by in majest majestic indifference and scornful condescension, ignoring everything, the plight of man, the burden of dreams, and the torments of time. Fantastic. So that's uh, how sometimes 
uh, I, I cannot escape uh, a certain vortex of, of, of words or, or a poem that comes back at times where it shouldn't come back. I should do something decent and not uh, reciting a poem inside of my head while I'm talking to someone. But it gets... While I'm bribing a soldier. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. words, words they, get, they do inhabit one. Just tell us briefly how this book came about. How it... Um, the small writing and then it's... It, it, the way it finds... How it gets born into the world. Uh, it, was, it was my last resort. In all the catastrophes, all the, all the plight, uh, all these torments, my last resort was language. It's not some, for some it's music, for some it's religion, for some it would be drugs. Not so for me. It's worse. Language, language, yes. And then your writing got smaller and smaller and smaller. Why? It's mysterious and it's, it's so undecipherable that uh, uh, it was obvious. I, I could not, in fact, I was sitting on this for four or five years and I thought I have to look into it. And I looked into it and uh, after 20 pages I had to give up because it was too painful. I could not, I could not face it and I left it. In the book, uh, Conquest of the Useless, what's Conquest of the Useless now, it took 26 years after I had written it when my wife said to me, in, in a hundred years or so somebody will come come across these diaries and they will try to decipher it and transcribe it and it will be idiots. You have to, you have to do it on your own and of course it's, it's edited as uh, the, the most, the wildest and most desperate of all years is deleted in almost its entirety. There's a book under here that you were talking yeah. to me about, about Lottie Lotte Eisner, yeah. Now, of, of walking in ice. Of yeah. walking in ice. And um, this is a book about a journey. Yes. Um, t tell us about that journey um, and that walk. Well, I would like to say one thing ahead of it. Uh, essential things, fundamentally, existentially uh, important things, uh, I would rather do on foot than in other other way. And I got a call <clears throat> in the mid 70s that uh, my mentor Lotte Eisner was critically ill and she was dying. Come quickly! I was in Munich. Come quickly to Paris. She is dying. Lotte Eisner was uh, being Jewish, was permanently under persecution by the rising Nazis, and. I think either the Völkische Beobachter or Der Stürmer, some of the uh, uh, main uh, ideological papers for the Nazis, wrote one day, if heads are gonna, going to roll, the head of this Jewish communist uh, will roll, Lottis. And she fled the day uh, Hitler took power. And she became somehow the the spirit, the mentor of the new German cinema. And for me in particular, because she somehow spotted me and uh, proclaimed to the world, Germany has legitimate cinema again, which was unusual at the time 
in the mid-60s or end of 60s, uh, it was hard to believe that Germany had acquired legitimate, authentic film culture again that was not involved in the barbarism of the Third Reich. And so I uh, immediately thought, oh yeah, what plane connection is there? Could I take a train or so? And then I decided, no, I'd come on foot. I would come on foot because I would not allow her to die. She will not die. She, it's it's uh, not that I would allow it. She will not die because she must not die because I do not allow it. Not, not now. She's not going. It was like an incantation. One million steps in snowstorms, in rainstorms coming from the west at 100 kilometers an hour sometimes at me and I walked uh, to Paris. And when I arrived, she was out of hospital. And you walked with nothing? You just no, I do not. I'm not a backpacker. Oh, so you just I do had not, your shoes. And yeah, no, backpacking means, backpacking means you bring your household along, your tent, your sleeping bag, your cooking utensil. I'm not one of those. I had a little duffel bag with a second set of underwear, toothbrush, a compass, uh, and a map. And I walked the straightest line possible. I waded through rivers, I crossed the fields, and I crossed the Black Forest, and I, I went just like, like a bison walks. Yeah. And, yeah, and, and at one point I, I wrote something uh, strange here, when, I think it's here on the back here. Um, uh, it says, our Eisner must not die. We called, I called her my Eisner, our Eisner must not die. She will not die. I won't permit it. She's not dying now because she's not allowed to. My steps are firm and now the earth trembles. When I move, a buffalo moves. When I rest, a mountain reposes. She wouldn't dare. And she didn't, she actually didn't dare to die. <laughs> she didn't, uh, and uh, she was about 80 years. We didn't know, nobody knew exactly how old she was. We only knew that from 75 on, she started to cheat about her age. Uh, she, we know that at least twice, maybe three times, she celebrated her 75th birthday. <laughs> and um, eight years later, after I had walked, traveled on foot, and not walking, traveling on foot, um, she called me and she said, come, come quickly, this time by train or by plane. So I said, yes, I'll take a train overnight, and I come. And she uh, received me, and she said to me, uh, and, and we were very formal, even though we were so close. It's like in French, vous, or in, or in Spanish, usted, the formal way to uh, address each other. And she said, listen, I'm almost blind now. I cannot read anymore the joy of my life. I cannot see films anymore, the joy of my life. Um, I can barely walk. Only on, on crutches I can walk. And she said it very uh, biblical. In German she said, ich bin satt vom Leben, ich bin lebenssatt, like Noah died at the age of 880, saturated of life. She said it in very biblical way. And she said, but I cannot die because there's still a spell upon me by you. 
that I must not die and I said to her, and we would do these things very casual almost, I would say to her, Lotte, you know, uh, the spell is taken off of you. And she died eight, uh, eight days later. And it was right, it felt right. We, uh, we still needed her too badly. We were still fragile, not completely articulate yet. And when I said the spell is taken off of you, fine, yes, because uh, we can walk, we can move on our own, we uh, have our forces, and we have our wits together. Mm. So, fine if you die now. One of the texts um, you alluded oh, can, to. Can I read you the, when, when I actually came to, to her, because it's very strange, uh, language uh, in, in a way came apart. I had uh, traveled on foot 85 kilometers at the end, a, a day, a night, and another day, yeah. and uh, <coughs> language somehow, <coughs> somehow started to come apart and uh, it is um, here in the English translation. Uh, it reflects the German text because the German is coming apart. Uh, for example, you can, you can stop the traffic, but you, you do not stop fish, you catch fish and you do not you, you cook a meal, but you do not cook a fire. So I'm saying that because it's coming here in the text. Sunday, 14th December. As afterthought, just this, I went to Madame Eisner as she was still tired and marked by her illness. Someone must have told her on the phone that I had come on foot. I didn't want to mention it. I was embarrassed and placed my smarting legs up on a second armchair, which she pushed over to me. In the embarrassment, a thought passed through my head, and since the situation was strange anyway, I told it to her. Together, I said, we shall boil fire and stop fish. Then she looked at me and smiled very delicately, and since she knew I was alone on foot, and therefore unprotected, she understood me. For one splendid fleeting moment, something mellow flowed through my deadly tired body. I said to her, open the window from these last days onwards, I can fly. That was Lottie. One of the books that I know you value is J.A. Baker's The Peregrine, so, and that is a book which, I mean, the language is, well, it's adamantine, it's, it's, it's incredible and solid. This book, why does a book about a peregrine, it's called The Peregrine, why does it matter to you so much? <clears throat> I, I got it by some chain of coincidences. A young man put it in my hands after some public appearance and I always get books and DVDs and all sorts of things, screenplays. And the way this young man stood in front of me and, and I immediately, you see, I, I, um, I, I somehow understand the heart of men. 
he stood here in front of me and uh, I immediately recognized there was a deep fire within this young man. And he said, read this. It's a very important book for me. And I <clears throat> started to read it, I think, the same evening. And uh, I got this kind of fire within and uh, J.A. Baker at that time, today we know a little bit more about him. There's some sort of sketchy biographical data uh, out there. Apparently, I don't, until today, I do not even know what J and A stands for, but it's known today. And we know that he lived in Eastern England um, and that he was probably ill from uh, uh, rheumatoid arthritis. Um, and that for 10 years or so, he went out on bicycle and, and watched peregrine falcons. It's, it, it doesn't have much meaning, but the book uh, has uh, qualities that are totally and absolutely stunning. Uh, it, has an almost, it has an almost re deep religious resonance. It has, it's almost incantatory. Um, how he describes his experience in the, the, the scope of the world is completely and utterly narrowed down only to the peregrines and some other birds. Human beings hardly ever, hardly ever <coughs> appear, I think once or twice he says, in the background there were uh, tractors yeah. moving or so. That's pretty much the only... Yeah. The, the only time he speaks about a human being but on a tractor. And of course he speaks in, in very um, strange terms about humans because he's so into with a, such an incredible gift of observation and with such participation and, um, uh, and excitement uh, into, this, into the peregrines that he almost seems to morph into a peregrine himself. He describes how the peregrine soars higher and higher and is, is only a dot in the sky and then all of a sudden comes swooping down. And, and his, he writes, <clears throat> and from all the way up there, we are swooping down, we, as if he had morphed into a, into a falcon himself. Mm. And, uh, uh, some of it is everyday events and, and not that exciting, and, but all the time uh, language is uh, of a caliber that we have seen for the last time, I think only in Joseph Conrad's mm. short stories. Mm. I'd like to read you maybe one or two short passages, if you, if you don't mind. It's a fantastic book. Yes. You, Highly you, recommend. Whoever, whoever has... Uh, had the courage to come here, should have the courage to, to read this. Um, so it's, it's not so much about watching birds, but becoming a bird. Um, uh, wherever he goes this winter, he speaks of the peregrine, there were only 14 healthy um, couples of peregrines still alive in Britain because of pesticides. Uh, they were at the brink of extinction. Now, um, and, and it's like uh, the, the tragedy coming at us that there will be a world without, without falcons. 
Of course, they have bounced back now, which is a wonderful event. Um, wherever he goes, the Peregrine, this winter I will follow him. I will share the fear and the exaltation and the boredom of the hunting life. I will follow him till my predatory human shape no longer darkens in terror the shaken kaleidoscope of color that stains the deep fovea of his brilliant eye. My pagan head shall sink into the winter land and there be purified. That sums a little bit up what, what he's into. And um, he uh, uh, describes not only peregrines, but also um, uh, yeah, how he almost morphs into, into the hunti hunting falcon. Uh, the body of the wood pigeon lay breast upward on a mass of soft white feathers. The head had been eaten. The bones were still dark red, the blood still wet. I found myself crouching over the kill like a mantling hawk. My eyes turned quickly about alert for the walking heads of men. Unconsciously, I was imitating the movements of a hawk as in some primitive ritual, the hunter becoming things he hunts. We, 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 I pronounce it clearly, we live in these days in the open, the same ecstatic, fearful life. We shun men. And it's, the, the book, uh, and it's, it has a, a, a deep principle in it that I, uh, I feel very deep inside, the, the form of ecstasy, almost like something religious uh, that would be experienced by uh, late medieval mystics. And uh, I've always tried both in writing or in filmmaking, to look beyond uh, the, the factual world and look into a deeper stratum of some, something that approximates us to, to, to a deep illumination of truth. Mm -hmm. Although I would not dare to, to try to define what truth actually is. Mm. We, we leave it, we better leave it vague out there, but I think everybody would understand what I mean. It occurs in poetry, um, <clears throat> it occurs in Hafiz, it occurs in the uh, poetic Edda, for example. <clears throat> and of course, it, it occurs here. Um, and he has wonderful little, tiny little observations that are, that are just very beautiful. And... Um, um, I'll just read another, if, if you don't mind. Uh, as I approached, I could see its whole body craving into flight. And he sees, um, actually, I think it's a heron. Uh, that um, I could see its whole body craving into flight, but it could not fly. I gave it peace and saw the agonized sunlight in its eyes slowly heal with cloud. No pain, no death is more terrible than a wild creature that, than its fear of man. A poisoned crow, gaping and helplessly floundering in the grass, in the grass, bright yellow foam bubbling from its throat, 
will dash itself itself uh, will dash itself up again and again onto the descending wall of air if you try to catch it a rabbit inflated and foul with myxomatosis will feel the vibration of our footstep and will look for you with bulging sightless eyes we are the killers we stink of death we carry it with us it sticks to us like frost we cannot tear it away mm. that's how he speaks of the human beings so um, of course uh, it's uh, it's a it's a wonderful a wonderful world view it's like an entire world in this mm. in this uh, narrow cosmos of of the falcon is the attraction of the book also i wonder the natural world is frightened of us but it's also indifferent yes as a monumental in, indifferent in, it, in nature uh, it nature cannot care less about us and do you like in that the uni not that i like it it's just a simple primitive fact and and i'm not into the disneyization of wild nature mother earth and cares for us no it does not it does not uh, and we have to do drastic drastic things to to make a survival for 7500 million human beings on this planet it's very drastic what we have to do and it's neither healthy for us nor healthy for the planet but the this quote unquote mother earth uh, which is a favorite term for the quasi philosophy of uh, babble of new age which i loathe gives you this term all the time yeah and and when you look at the at the universe uh, the star out there the confusion of the stars out there there is no harmony of the universe as it was believed in antiquity the harmony of spheres not so it's a mess it's just a mess and it's hostile and it's murderous and uninviting we do not belong there it's as, as simple as that <laughs> so. yeah. yes <laughs> We have been, um, we've been writing a long time, and I know that one of the, um, you're interested in the um, early Bronze Age, uh, well, texts produced in what is now known as Greece, but which wasn't Greece then, and you're interested in Michael Ventris, who translated this language, Linear B. You're also very interested in the early Icelandic sagas yeah which were written a bit also late. the Edda yeah and the Edda. On Edda, Edda itself uh, dates back uh, uh, into the abyss of time much of it probably in oral tradition and in the 12th century it was written down and there's only one single manuscript the Codex Regius uh, the Royal Codex Royal Codex because uh, this parchment small parchment book a little bit like this a little thicker uh, was given by, by an idiot, uh, a mindless um, Icelandic bishop, 
gave it to, to get favors from the crown of, of Denmark, gave it as a present to, to the king of Denmark. And for centuries it was uh, in, in the library in, in Denmark, and in the early 70s it was returned to, um, uh, to, to Iceland. And it's, in a way, how shall I say, it's as important as, as the origin of the soul, the deepest soul of Iceland, of the people, of their language, of their mythology, is embedded in this parchment, in this single one. It's like, let's say, importance like the Death Sea Scrolls for, for Israel. Uh, the Book of Kells, maybe for Ireland, but Book of Kells is not such a absolutely central sort of piece. And um, when Denmark returned it, uh, they put it on the largest uh, battleship that Denmark possessed at the time. And it was accompanied by cruise ships and hundreds of sailing boats. And half the population of Iceland was waiting at the pier for four or five days, getting drunk and reciting and singing the, the, the Edda poetry until it was delivered. And I was in Iceland a few years later, invited, and it was winter, my host wanted to take me out in the landscape. And I said, no, it doesn't look right, it's all white in white, I know how snow looks like. And they said, what else would you like to, to do? And I said, can I see the uh, Codex Regius? And they said, yeah, maybe, and it's complicated. <laughs> but, but two days later, I was taken down in an elevator in a eight floors down under the National Bank into an atomic bomb vault. And they opened a drawer, a steel drawer, and handed me the Codex Regius. And I could read some of it, and I could uh, distinguish a few elements in it. And while I was down there, all of Iceland knew I was down there holding the, the text. <laughs> and when I surfaced, immediately there was a small crowd. The barber dragged me into his barber shop and, and gave me a haircut for free. <laughs> and the pastry baker uh, had, had me tasting his newest, uh, best things. And, and I mean, I, I was as if I was royalty all of a sudden because I had held the, the Codex, the book. And very recently, I held it in my hands again when I did a film on volcanoes because there's a cataclysmic de description of the end of the gods, the end of the world, which quite apparently um, has a background in a massive volcanic uh, catastrophe. And I filmed this, and it's part of the film, and I actually recited in the film, the film is called Into the Inferno and it's about um, uh, volcanoes, but around the world. I filmed in North Korea and in Ethiopia and in Iceland and in Indonesia and, and so on. I, um, I could only get a 19th century translation of the Eda, of, the, of Project Gutenberg. Yeah. And, um, which, so I don't have it as a text and I, I read I read some, and what struck me about it were these really singular images. So the description of the creation of the world, yes. various things happen, but the cow of plenty is entombed in ice, and somebody, a god, licks the ice. 
and releases the cow. And I thought, that's absolutely fantastic. And it's, do you like that sort of? Yes, sure, it has a certain depth. By the way, there's a very fine translation, but in in some sort on purpose into some antiquated English Mm. to give a sense of depth by Lee Hollander. Lee Hollander, the poetic Edda. You can find it very easily on the internet. And uh, that's a a real beautiful, uh, although I I really mind that Lee Hollander in the text fairly early, creation of the world, uh, the 10th, 12th or so stanza begins about the creation of dwarfs. And it names, uh, it names the dwarfs, and all of a sudden it rattles down name after name after name, 82 or 84 names of dwarfs. And it was scholars believe that it's a later time interpolation into the text. And Hollander, uh, he shouldn't meet me in person, puts, <laughs> takes it out of the text and puts it in, in a footnote in an appendix. And the names of the dwarfs are phenomenal. And it's like the rhythm of, uh, of the names and how they are played out is the most phenomenal rap, rhythmical rap mm. that you can ever see in your life. Mm. So uh, he should, I don't know if Lee Hollander is alive or not, but he better watch out. Yes, because he comes. You'll be, you'll be comes, talking yes. to him. I will be talking to him and I will ask him to the parking lot <laughs> to sort it, sort it out with him. Yes. Um, what about Virgil's Georgics? Because that you have a, 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 a film educational practice, yeah. and there are certain texts you ask people to read. Yeah. Um, J. A. Baker's *The Peregrine* is one. The *Short Happy Life* of Francis Macomber is another. A by Hemingway. By Hemingway. Yeah. Um, a third are the Georgics by yes. Virgil. Why On purpose, you... not the Aeneid. Yes. Uh, which is a more a program, of course, you always sense, although it's one of the most beautiful texts you can ever come across in your entire life. But it, of course, it has this programmatic tone in it, the celebration of the Augustaean Empire. Yeah. the origin of the Roman Empire, uh, which I think was a mistake. And this is why I'm very much on the side of the assassins of Julius Caesar. I'm, I'm, a, fan, I'm a fan of Brutus yes. and Cassius. Anyway, uh, that's an, an aside, but uh, the Georgics um, the uh, uh, is about agriculture, life in the country and um, and the joy and the beauty and the protection by the gods of agriculture and raising animals, raising sheep, horses, cattle. And it's, one thing is obvious. Uh, Virgil uh, grew up on a farm as a farm boy near Mantova mm. in northern Italy. And he has seen all this. And uh, he does, it's arguably the most beautiful of all poems ever written. It's a mm. long, of course. Uh, poem, uh, 60, 70 pages or so. And um, what he does is uh, he never is descriptive. He, 
he just names the glory of the beehive mm. and describes the bees. Mm. And he uh, speaks about, he names a terror that invades the stables uh, and a plague that kills off uh, the sheep and the horses and this kind of almost speechless uh, horror that's in, in all this. And uh, Virgil has been very important for me for one film in particular when I was in Antarctica. I did a film, um, uh, Encounters at the End of the World. And you cannot do any pre-production. You are flown in because it's so expensive to go into Antarctica. You have to be invited. You have one chance, one shot at doing a film. Five weeks later, they fly you out. No matter what, you have to bring back a film. And I was alone with only one cinematographer. I would do the sound and direct the film. And we step out. There was a big military plane from New Zealand. And after eight hours, you land on the, on the sea ice of the Ross ice shelf. The size the ice shelf is a bay the size of France, <laughs> about or the size of Texas. I mean, huge. And you land there on the ice, and you step out in this glaring sun. You know it. the sun is not going down for the next four months. You step out, and you squint. And the cinematographer, Peter Zeitling, a solid, massive, strong man, he looks and he says, Werner, that was the first thing, how, for God's sake, do, can we describe this entire continent for an audience back home? And I answered without thinking, without missing a beat. I said to him, you know what? We do it like Virgil in the Georgics. We name the glory of the continent. We name the glory of the people who do research there. We name the glory of the divers who go under through the ice and, uh, and do research and do filming for us under the ice, uh, which is a science fiction world that can only exist out there in the Andromeda Nebula, mm. for example. And that's how we did the film. I'd never read the Georgics until I was prompted by you. Yeah. And uh, Virgil's knowledge, you know, he tells you what you graft, what from a seed, he yeah. tells you everything, how much manure. I mean, his, he, 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 you know that this is somebody you can absolutely trust. He's, he's not yes, giving you any nonsense. Based, it is based on his physical experience. Yeah. It's, he's directly related. And like, like uh, he's one of those, like, uh, like for example, uh, J.A. Baker, one of those like Joseph Conrad, who has actually traveled to the Congo and has traveled in yeah. the Far East. So he knows and what he's... Yes. Talking about. And you know what you are talking about after you have spent years with prisoners. You know what you are. I it, do. Yes, and it forms your language and it forms your worldview. And but, those, those are the. Or Hemingway, he's one of those. But there was something else about Virgil that struck me, which was. You. It, it was hypnotic, it was mesmeric. Yeah. And what you arrived at was a sense of... I kept thinking about the doge of Venice marrying yeah. the sea and certain Irish sept or clan chiefs marrying the land. You end the Georgics by knowing 
you, are, you have a profound relationship with the soil. Yes. It, 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 if, if you don't have that relationship, you don't live. Everything comes out of it yes. that makes you what you are. And I'd never read anything that put me into that kind of frame of mind. It's not nature worship. No. It's something else. Yeah. I think nature worship is, uh, is something uh, which existed in antiquity to a certain degree, and it has totally and absolutely degenerated uh, in, in the new age babble about nature and in Walt Disney. So, uh, but uh, what you are saying, uh, the, a sort of hypnotic attraction by what's out there and, uh, uh, and, and being rooted and, mm. and uh, this kind of gaze that is uh, almost a hypnotic, hypnotic gaze into, into the world. That's something that has always fascinated me. You may know that I even did a feature film, Heart of Glass, uh, with all the actors playing under hypnosis, mm -hmm. but so deep under hypnosis that they would open their eyes without waking up and even communicating. That's possible, even under hypnosis. Two persons under hypnosis are capable of communicating, exchanging dialogue. And I did screenings of films with an audience under hypnosis. Because, you know, it's, uh, it's uh, actually not, not a circus gimmick or so, because we know very little about vision, about perception. It's not understood fully yet how perception changes. And under hypnosis, people who saw Aguirre, the wrath of God, tell me later, a few of them, that as if they were in a helicopter would circle around the leading character almost like what we have now in 360-degree virtual reality, happened to some of the audiences uh, that saw a film of mine under hypnosis. Because of reading Virgil, yeah. I then read another text which you'd recommended, a, a German poet called Holderlin. Holderlin, yes. Holderlin, yeah. um, who I didn't know about. Well, the greatest, greatest of all German poets. He is... Um, yeah. So, it's, he, I, I say that because uh, uh, he needs to be mentioned because when you ask uh, Germans, they do not know who Hölderlin was. Uh, and yet, uh, he's the one who went further uh, in, in language than anyone else to the outer reaches of our language. Yeah. But he's also... I was really struck. He is a phenomenal poet of light and dark and the circadian rhythm, the, just the, the, well, I'm going to say the mechanics of the universe. That, yeah. I don't mean that's just descriptive, not critical, but the wind, the way the landscape is organized, it's so monumentally concrete when you read his verse. I, I, I mean, who is he? Um, well, I, I cannot give you the full biography, but uh, um, he was, uh, as a very young man, um, uh, I mean, of course, phenomenally gifted, not completely acknowledged by his contemporaries. Um, 
had a catastrophic love relationship that got him nowhere, and um, he was not, um, not really acknowledged uh, by uh, German culture, some yes, but he actually left Germany, went to Bordeaux in France as a private tutor. And why, when he left, he said, Germany has no, no place for me. And there were early signs of insanity in him, uh, which were not recognized as insanity at the time. But he, he's also one of those who traveled on foot. Mm -hmm. And he travels on foot from um, uh, Bordeaux all the way uh, to Tübingen uh, in Frankfurt uh, and arrives stark mad. Um, and the last uh, 38 or so years of his life spends in a, in a tower of the wall of the city of Tübingen. Uh, a carpenter, a carpenter who loved his poetry, took him in and fed him and gave him one room in a tower. Uh, he was actually not locked away. He was able to walk out sometimes. He would walk up and down and uh, um, still write, yeah. but it's, uh, uh, it's, it's not real poetry anymore, although there are some academics who claim in, in an idiotic twist of thinking that these little nursery rhymes are his real poetry. No, they are not. Uh, and... Of course, you can see when you read his fragments and his great hymns, hymns and odes, how language comes apart and becomes fragmented more and more. And there's uh, pages that are almost undecipherable and a word somewhere in the middle of the page and half a sentence down at the bottom. And it, uh, you can sense that there's something coherent, but the the thing that is unsaid is probably the most important and you have to complete it as a reader. Although, of course, he has written completed poems uh, uh, that are quite beautiful in his early time. I can... Hymns and Fragments by Friedrich Hölderlin. Uh, he uh, has published... Uh, he has published a few things at his lifetime, Half of Life. And you, even though it's a very early poem, poem you, you sense his coming solitude and a, and a deep fear of, uh, uh, of uh, being left out there in the freezing cold and alone. Half of Life, with its yellow piers, and wild roses everywhere, the shore hangs in the lake. O oh, gracious swans, and drunk with kisses, you dip your heads in the sobering holy water. Ah, where will I find flowers come winter, and where the sunshine and shade of the earth? Walls stand cold and speechless, in the wind the weather vanes creak. So you have a premonition, and in almost, almost everything he does, you, 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 get, this, uh, you get this deep feeling of uh, <coughs> entering into a speechless solitude, mm -hmm. cold, speechless uh, mm. uh, abandonment. Mm. 
and he's, he's uh, deeply, deeply tragic as a human being. Mm. So uh, it, uh, he touches me, only, only thinking about his name, I'm moved. You like work that comes out of experience, deep experience of life. Yeah. And you alluded earlier to Conrad and Hemingway, yeah. who also, I presume you like or are attracted to because they had... Yeah, Joseph Conrad, mostly the short stories. Uh, the, his, his novels, I... They're very long. Uh, yes, and I, I have more difficulties, I have difficulties with them. Mm -hmm. Same thing with Hemingway's uh, first 49 stories. Uh, that's uh, the, the work I really relate uh, more easily. Why do you ask your students to read the short, happy life of Francis Macomber? Um, because it's such a concise story. It's like, it, it's almost like a movie, as a movie should be. Condensed and stark and merciless. Mm -hmm. It's merciless. And, uh, and the caliber of, of language and text and description of events that is, that is absolute masterly. And Hemingway, when he published the first 49 stories, he uh, actually did it in chronological uh, order. But he put the short, happy life of Francis, Francis Macomber in first position, even though it was a fairly late mm. text. He knew that was his best. I'm mm. sure, I'm mm. sure he knew. And, and when you read this text, and it's only 20 or so pages, mm you know there is a great master at work. And um, I try to, to tell the students of, I call it the rogue film school, which teaches you nothing. It's more like a way of life. It's long weekend seminars, which I run single-handedly, uh, four days, eight hours, almost non-stop alone. And with a very selected small group of young filmmakers, and uh, I notice everywhere that filmmakers, even those who study in university, probably not in Ireland, but in the United States, they do not read anymore. They, yes, they read, but they read tweets, and they read uh, Facebook entries, and they do not do any deep reading. And I tell them, I tell them, uh, you have to read, 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 read. If you, if you do not read, you, you might eventually become a filmmaker, but a mediocre at best. So, and I have a mandatory list of books, and uh, you have to read at least three of them. And if somebody shows up and they come from from everywhere, if somebody comes from Brazil and the other one from New Zealand and somebody from Siberia and he, she or it hasn't read any of these books, I send them straight home. They know him, I'm, I mean business. Uh, it's, I mentioned at the very beginning that there's only one thing you repeat deliberately in this book. Yeah. And it's the idea that uh, you say, if you read, you have the world. If you don't read, you're lost. I'm yeah, I, paraphrasing I would, it. Uh, yes. I, can, I, I would be, no, I can be more specific. If you read, you earn the world. If you, yeah. if you um, 
are too much on the internet, you lose the world. Yes. That's my today version. Yes. Uh, 20 years ago, I said, if you watch too much TV, you lose the world. Yes. But today, it's the internet. Yes. If you're constantly on the, on the internet, you lose the wor world. What are we going to do about that? Can, uh, we, can we stop it? Uh, it's hard to stop it because it's a worldwide overwhelming cultural trend. It's not uh, that it's... Um, there's no magic bullet. It's deep and overwhelming, and uh, I, uh, I uh, fight. I fight back. As long as there's breath in me, I fight back. Uh, but that's okay. And, and whether it's uh, useless or not, I don't care. I really do not care. But I speak out, and I do read, and mm. I, I see much more. Well, I do not see many films, but I do read. Mm. Yeah. I mean, what I discovered in the prison yeah. was that people, you know, they might be hooligans or whatever outside or criminals or gangsters, but once you're on the wing, once you're in jail, yeah. the man with the word is king. Because nothing, which comes from reading and writing, nothing happens in a prison yeah. unless it's written down. Nothing. You cannot do anything in a prison unless you can write it down. Yeah. Because, of course, obviously you have no access to the internet yeah. and the rest of it. But also, it's, it's, that's how it is. Everything is written. Yeah. And I... Yes, I'm now of the opinion that if you want to make films, in fact, if you want to do anything, you have to read. I, too, say to my children, throughout their childhood, you have to read, 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 read. That's, yeah. that's my... Ma so, and it's I'm not right with you. You see, if, if, I, if I tell them, read the Peregrine, it doesn't make you a filmmaker, but it's an attitude, the precision of observation and the caliber of prose and the stylizations and all this is, is a prerequisite for, for gaining and translating and transforming the world into images mm. or transformation of the world into language. Mm. And that happens in the Peregrine. And, and it could be 500 other books, or it could be 5,000 other books. Mm. It did seem to me when I read, because I read the Peregrine and the short happy life of Francis Macomber, uh, yeah. one after the other, um, they're both in the same area. That Hemingway's account of shooting animals, his, account, his, his attention, his correctness, yeah. is echoed by Baker and vice versa. You know exactly what you're seeing. It, the specificity is yeah. breathtaking. Um, and of course, uh, what you see very often in Hemingway's uh, texts, a man crumbling under pressure. Hmm. And, uh, but here in Francis Macomber, uh, the man in this case actually bounces back. Hmm which costs him his life mm. <laughs> within very short mm. moments. Mm. So uh, it's a very, very fascinating uh, text. Would you have liked to have been a poet or...? I am a poet. <laughs> but... Yeah. But just a poet. Yeah. Just a man of the word. Yes, uh, I mean, my, my first uh, 
in deepest fascination is a transformation of, a wor of the world into, into images. Mm. And of course, always uh, language as well, and uh, writing as well. Of course, I have not written enough. However, I do believe that the texts that I have written, like Of Walking in Ice or Conquest of the Useless, may eventually outlive my films. I, I have some sort of, uh, um, of, a, of a strong feeling about it. I may be wrong. Why do you think that? Because there's nothing in between. You see, when you, uh, when you make a film, there's a technical side of it, cameras and sound and laboratories and mixing and uh, recording things. And you have psychology with actors and finances and organization and bad weather that stops you all of a sudden, and on and on and on. A lot of things in between. When you write, there's nothing in between. Or when you play the cello, there's nothing in between uh, your soul and the instrument that expresses it. Right. It gives the voice to it. And it's, uh, it's not only when, when we speak about the word, and, and I, I'm fascinated because uh, I am fairly certain because I've been with prisoners as well. I've done a series on um, inmates in death row in Texas and one, two cases in Florida. And uh, the word of, in this case, from man to man, a word of a man counts. Mm. And, and I noticed it even I filmed in North Korea not long ago for the vol volcano film with guards and everything. I filmed something I was not supposed to do. And after 10 seconds, I was stopped. S one of the Secret Service men immediately stood right in front of the lens. We had to turn it off and we were forced to delete it. But as we had a very small crew and the data management was, was very complex, we couldn't delete it, and with their equipment, we couldn't delete it either. So they demanded to confiscate the entire hard drive with three days of filming, and I said, uh, that would be terrible for me. Uh, and um, uh, instead of, um, of doing that, I would like to give them the guarantee that I would not use this footage. It would ever stay buried in my hard drive. And they said, ah, yeah, yeah, you mean a 50-page contract that, that you tear apart when, when you leave our country. And I said, no, I do not function like this. I'm a man from the mountains, and I've walked on foot. I've walked on foot around my own country to hold it together when politics had abandoned uh, the uh, reunification of Germany. And I said to myself, it's only the poets who can hold it together by traveling along the borderline, up and down in the mountains, all the sinuations of the border, Bavaria, Austria, Switzerland, France, Denmark, uh, uh, Netherlands, uh, Belgium, Luxembourg, Denmark, and so on. And uh, I wanted to hold it together. When Willy Brandt in 1983 or so in a declaration at the Bundestag said in public at the Bundestag, the book of the German reunification is closed. 
I said to myself, nobody, nobody can say that. And in particular, not the German Chancellor. And it's the same thing with your country, which is divided, still divided. It is something of historical dimension. It's not of political dimension. There's something much deeper. And your country uh, will be, will be re reunited one day in the future, and so will Korea. Mm -hmm. And I noticed that the deepest um, impetus and desire and longing in North Koreans, I didn't know that was reunification. And I said, you know, I, I've traveled on foot around my own country to hold it together. And uh, I can give you not just one guarantee, I give you three guarantees. And they said, what is it then? And I said, my honor, my face, and my handshake. And they said, this, uh, the kind of joy I cannot describe. It's indelible in me how, how I felt because I knew this was the beginning of reunification. Shall we ask these people if they have any yeah. questions? Yes, of course. Would you like yeah. some water? Uh, I'm fine no. at the moment, I'm still okay. Your energy? Yeah. You are indefatigable. <laughs> um, we do have microphones, I think. Uh, I'm told that on either side, yes. there oh, are the microphones and is, also up Is there. that a gentleman at the back who wants ah, to yeah. speak? Do you want to speak? Yeah, okay. Yes, please. Get the microphone and, and I, tell uh, us, and then I will relay the question back so everyone I, gets it. No. I'd like to ask... Oh, no, we hear it all here. What, what's the best piece of advice you've ever heard about screenwriting? And is that reading list for your students available on the internet? <laughs> so, what is the best yeah. piece of advice about screenwriting? Yeah. And is your reading list for the Rogue School on the internet? Uh, yes, the reading list uh, of the Rogue Film School is on the internet. It shifts slightly, um, but um, it's on the internet. You find it, in this case, Facebook, uh, uh, Rogue Film School. And, and you have to dig a little bit into it and you'll find it. Um, and uh, advice for screenwriting, there is no advice. As, as there's no advice for writing poetry or writing a, a novel. Um, I would give a very vague advice. Start writing when you have a fairly clear vision of what you're gonna do, what the story is and how the uh, how the dialogue sounds and who your characters are and what the environment is. And so I'm not a good example because quite often I see a, a film right in front of my eyes as if I was sitting in a theater and looking at a screen. And it's almost like copying what I hear and, and see. And, and because of that, I write very, very fast. It always has to do also with the vehemence it, with which a story or a dialogue or characters are coming at me. And I, I never have kept abreast with, uh, with everything. So uh, while I'm sitting here, I should start at least three new films. Uh, and, and I haven't written a screenplay, so I spend no, no time in writing screenplays. Uh, I do it normally in a week, 
sometimes even shorter. Uh, but um, it's dictated by, by the urgency, by the vehemence of what is coming at me from a screen. Uh, but it makes me understand that without a clear vision, it's probably hard to write a screenplay. I've never been into developing characters and developing a story. And there are, you see there are these idiotic screenplay gurus in the United States <laughs> who speak of the three acts theory by, by page 29, the leading character, he, she, or she, has to understand their role or their, their task. By page 50, there has to come a deep crisis. And by the end of the film, uh, the leading character has to come out as a changed person. What, what, kind, of, what kind of a phenomenal idiocy is that? <laughs> so be, beware. Um. And it, it dictates the predictability of almost everything that comes out of Hollywood. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and I don't want to see and hear this kind of, of thing anymore. No. There's a gentleman there with his arm up. Can you raise your hand higher so that you, be, you should be found by the microphone? Yes, it's zipping its way to you. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm heartened by your uh, certitude on the uh, reunification of Ireland. Um, I'm, uh, you, you filmed in uh, Skellig Michael in, off the coast of Kerry, yeah. I think in the 1970s. Yes. Um, long before Star Wars. And they are, uh, do you have any memories of that? They are thieves without loot. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering if you could say some, some more about that. And also, um, I believe you're friends with David Lynch, and I was wondering whether you've watched the new episodes of Twin Peaks. Of what? Well, something yeah, about Skellig. And have you watched David Lynch's new uh, Twin Peaks? No, I think he hasn't even started shooting yet. These days, I think these days he's supposedly starting shooting, although he declared... Uh, some time ago that he's done with filmmaking, which I found not good and not right. So I, I really like him as a filmmaker, but uh, although we have been quite respectful with each other, and we still are, um, I regret that he's not making enough films. He is uh, very much now into transcendental meditation. <laughs> and no, it... Uh, it's, it's not, not uh, anything that I would like to joke about. For him, very, very serious, and, and we have to respect it. At the same time, I, I, wish, I wish it was true that he's actually doing a new version of Twin Peaks. Uh, Skellig Rock, um, I hope that in four or five days I will be there on Skellig Mikey because I'm staying in your country, I want to go west. Uh, I want to hear Gaelic. Um, I want to ascend on Skellig Rock once more, and there's, a, there's an essential image. Um, it's shot 
from the air encircling around a, a lonesome figure, tiny, tiny, tiny on this gigantic rock in the middle of the Atlantic and looking out over the ocean. And he's the first one who doubts that the earth is flat and doesn't end in an abyss. And within time, some others join him. And then they finally, they take a small rowing boat and they row out into the unknown to, to find out whether the earth is really flat or not. And that's exactly the end of the film. And, and it's almost like a self-description. That's why Skellig Rock has been very important for me. And I found it a, a small literary uh, a publishing house, and I called it Skellig Edition. And uh, recently I found it uh, a, a film company in California, and it's called, it is called Skellig Rock Incorporated. <laughs> so, <laughs> So I try to, to go back and see, see the place again, but I want to move uh, further north, Connemara and some other places. So uh, I'd really, really be curious to see your country again. There's a gentleman over Down here. Down here, second row. In the second row. We should also ask some up there, yes. yes. Hi there. Thanks for such an interesting evening. And I just wanted to ask about the Gertrude Bell film, Queen of the Desert, and what was it like to direct Nicole Kidman? She's one of my favorite actors. She's one of my favorite actresses as well. In fact, at the moment, the finest that I know. Um, very easy to work with her because she's very Australian, very much a person who uh, has a deep sense of camaraderie uh, about her and, and a real, real workhorse and full of, full of uh, understanding uh, vast, vast spaces. She, she looks at a landscape and you know uh, she's not just giving some sort of look. She knows the Sahara Desert is, is the next four or five thousand kilometers stretching out in front of her. So very, very, very pleasant. And she's a wonderful actress. The film was disliked by professional reviewers. They were uh, expecting a film where she's furiously fighting the forces of nature and, and plowing through sandstorms. It's not a film like that. Uh, however, uh, what I just heard yesterday the film is doing phenomenally well uh, on the internet. You can download it, you can, how do you call it? You can stream. stream it. You can stream it, and in streaming, it has been on the top of the charts for quite a while now. So I'm pleased about that, and I'm sure that Nicole will like to hear that as well. There was somebody way up there we should not ignore. There's In the gods. Very, very last row, I think, to the right from us. Hi, Werner. Really nice to, to yeah. be here. Um, it strikes me that there's a lot of quite heroic women in your life, like your mother and Lotta Esner and, and your wife. And I wonder, are uh, you wary? She's here. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> no. 
not, not, I wouldn't say heroic, but very courageous. And I have been a, a lucky, very lucky, very blessed man since more than 21 years. Wow, congratulations. But I'm wondering on the other side of that is, are you wary of being perceived as a typical male heroic director? I couldn't care less. <laughs> I, 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 uh, I, didn't, I didn't even notice that there was uh, most, all, almost all my, at least feature films were about, uh, about male characters, but I've done Land of Silence and Darkness, a, a woman who is deaf and blind at the same time. The absolute hero, heroic. I've done a film, uh, uh, Wings of Hope, about a plane crash, uh, where one single 17-year-old girl survived. And it always fascinated me because I was booked on the same plane, but in the last moment was taken off the dead flight. Um, yes, and of course, uh, Nicole Kidman in Queen of the Desert, a very courageous, very deep uh, woman. I've done the very last feature film right after, um, um, sh shortly after Queen of the Desert is called Salt in Fire. Again, the leading character, uh, uh, a woman. So I don't even notice that much, and uh, I think it's, it's not of great relevance. And, and we do not get nervous. Why is it that Ingmar Bergman was at his best with women, uh, protagonists, women? We do not get nervous why Antonioni's best characters are always women. Uh, it's, it's, of, it's not very relevant. Mm. I would also, I mean, Wojtek is, yes. is about, Wojtek and Wojtek's wife is a profound film yeah. about relationships. Yes, of, yes, sure. And, and it, um, it comes up once in a while, but, uh, but the observation is correct in, in all the number of films. And I think I've made almost 70, or it depends on how you count. I've actually never counted them. It's, it, it is, when you look at it, uh, it is a statistical anomaly that there are more men protagonists than, than females. Uh, but uh, it, it doesn't tell me anything, nor does it tell the audience anything. Shall we look all these? Which hand would you like? Uh, maybe from this side, as close to the edge. This gentleman uh, or, yeah, or that lady up there? Would yeah, you like where, her? I see the, where I see the hand down here, almost at the edge. Can you pass the microphone, please? Hi, oh, yeah. it's really nice to be able to say hello to you. Um, I was just wondering, um, what film of yours do you like the most? Which oh, one do you like the least, that. and no, why? No, no. <laughs> no, no. We no. love all our children. Y yes, sure, we love all our children. The ones that, that have the most defects, the child with a stutter and the child with a limp, we, we love more than the others. <laughs> so that's how it is. Uh, no, I truly love them all. No, no doubt in my heart. And they cannot be improved. 
Um, well, can I say it more bluntly? Although uh, the films or the children may have their defects, deep inside I know they are all impeccable. <laughs> um, what about this, yes. this lady? Uh, yes, or gentleman, I can't quite see because my... I'm sorry for making such arbitrary decisions. There are many more, yes, please. Hi, thank you. It's been such a privilege and you've been so generous with your time and your knowledge. I just have a question. I recently uh, listened to your uh, interview with Mark Marin, where you discussed your experience at the end of the war. And you've discussed that a little bit this evening about how you were at a remove from this catastrophic event, which is happening all around you. And I wonder if that has had any influence on your role as an observer, because I find that with a lot of your films, both your fiction films and mm -hmm. your documentary films, you seem to be one step at a remove from the things that you are observing. And I'm wondering if that has any roots in your in the history mm -hmm. of that experience at the end of the war. Um, yes, uh, in, in a way, but, but we shouldn't we shouldn't put too much emphasis on it. Uh, it's easy to stress your experience in childhood and they form you forever. <clears throat> Certain things may be, and my very, very first memory is from an age where you normally do not have memories, but it was significant because my mother rips my older brother and me at two in the morning out of bed, ice cold, still the slope uh, next to the house in snow. And she wraps us in blankets and hastens up in the snow. And at the end of the valley, you saw uh, this gap in the valley out there. And she says, boys, I woke you up. You have to see this. The city of Rosenheim is burning. But the city of Rosenheim, 40 miles away, 60, 70 kilometers away, was carpet bombed at the end of the war, just four or five weeks before the very end of the war. And there was no fire, there was no fire visible, no, no flames or so, but as it was so far. But I remember the entire night sky uh, at the end of the valley was pulsing in red and orange and yellow, slow pulsing. And um, this is in a way indelible, and later as a child, I always had the feeling, what is beyond, what's beyond this valley? I'm cu I was curious, more curious than my brothers, for example. I wanted to know, and why, why is it that there is a war? Why is it that, uh, uh, that there was, later I learned it was bombs, and the city of Rosenheim was um, burned to ashes. So, a curiosity. But not, not that much more, otherwise the, my childhood was, was, a, was a wonderful, uh, very well enclosed, very well protected, no, not really protected, but a, a wonderful childhood growing up in post-war Germany, later in the city, still lots of ruins. And children growing up in ruins, it's the most wonderful kind of, of uh, growing up you can ever imagine. And my friends who grew, grew up their first 10 years in their lives in the bombed out cities, they're still delirious about the time. 
that was their, they owned the city and there were no fathers around to tell them how to behave and what to do. And, and they, uh, they explored the world in, in with, a, uh, with a fascination and with a background that was different. And, and none of us ever wants to miss that. And of course, the way I grew up uh, was without any, uh, anything uh, of modern civilization. We had no running water. You had to go to the well with a bucket. Uh, electricity sometimes, no radio, no telephone. I made my first, first phone call when I was 17. It's inconceivable today for young people. And uh, it was good like that. And uh, being uh, anchored in, in, this, uh, in this small, narrow place, in this mountain, most remote mountain valley in Bavaria that uh, has anchored me in life. Mm. And also in language. My first language was, was Bavarian. Yeah, Where should maybe we go? if you if maybe you just th hand it over to and then maybe this we should, young man and then we can go to the back. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Herzog, I wouldn't yeah. have any cinematic background at all now. I experienced and viewed you first through your uh, documentaries on inmates in prison. Now myself personally, I've been around people in Dublin who've served time, so I could understand the dynamic of it. But you spoke there tonight about how you walked to Paris, and then you spoke as well about how you walked around Germany. Now you spoke as well about Virgil. Now, were you influenced by Dante Alighieri's Divine Comedy in the way he journeyed and the way he travelled, and as well by Homer's The Odyssey? And have you read these? Yes, but it shouldn't be made into a film. You <laughs> see, uh, whoever, whoever who tries Dante's uh, Divine Comedy to translate in a film should be, should be shot on sight. The film, I mean, did, did it influence you that you felt that by walking, and you, you said yourself you could have taken a train to Paris yeah. by walking like Dante did, because Dante famously in his background in Florence and because of yeah. certain things he'd done and he'd lost, he felt he, by writing the Divine Comedy, he took on this experience that he, he traveled through this. And you said yourself about Virgil, he used Virgil as his guide. And yeah. famously, Dante wrote, was the father of modern Italian language. Yeah. And, Latin was, and you said yourself there about the Latin language. Did you feel by walking and by traveling like this, you'd taken on like, like Dante yeah. did? You I, I do not know that uh, Dante really traveled on foot. Uh, it, his, his voyage was probably more through poetry and literature and through antiquity. Uh, Petrarch was the one who actually did some traveling on foot, and he was the first mountain climber, the first mountain climber probably ever, because in antiquity you don't have it. Petrarch climbed, was the first man of whom we know he climbed a mountain. And it's very interesting, he actually wrote a letter in Latin to a friend, and speaks of the shudder of awe uh, doing that, and, and understanding as if a deep sin was committed, something not right about climbing mountains. He understood, of course, people who live in the mountains, like in northern Italy, in southern France or Switzerland, mountain people never climbed. Um, the Sherpas in uh, Nepal never climbed a mountain. 
the Baltis in Pakistan, in the Karakoram, never uh, climbed the mountain. They left the, the dignity of the mountain untouched. And there was something, something of, of messing with the sacrality uh, of uh, doing that, setting your foot on a mountaintop. And it's very interesting, in this letter, Petrarch actually describes some sort of shudder that he feels himself as if it was not right what he was doing. And I do believe it was not right that any of the Himalaya mountains ever was climbed. There's something not right. And today, when you look at Mount Everest, it's a pure, absolute, unspeakable obscenity. So it shouldn't have happened. Should we, should Maybe pretty far back. Pretty uh, far back. Yeah, there are. Hi, Werner. Um, speaking about mountains, I want to ask you about your wonderful film, La Soufrière. Um, you risked your life to go and visit this mountain. Um, I screened that film in Connemara a couple of years ago as part Hi. of an art project in a makeshift um, cinema. And uh, okay, it got great. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> I got permission from your brother. Yes. Lucky. <laughs> yeah. But you risked your life to make this film, which was ultimately about failure. Can you speak a little bit about this? <clears throat> well, normally I'm a very, a very prudent person. Sometimes. Uh, my crew persuades me to prudence. For example, I wanted to swim across the Mekong River into Laos, where we knew where the, tr the plane wreck of Dieter Dengler, this uh, American POW, uh, had crashed. Uh, and, the, and the team persuaded us not to swim across because we had no shooting permit. So in uh, La Souffrière, what shall I say? Yes. Um, I do have a good sense of, uh, of risks, and I've always been very, very good in assessment of risks. Uh, however, La Souffrière was one of the two or three moments where uh, nobody knew what was going to happen. It was this volcano on the island of Guadeloupe, which was uh, known to explode inevitably. It was inevitable what came because of the signals the mountain issued. Uh, seismic activity of great magnitude, toxic gases, you just name it. So uh, the island was completely evacuated with the exception of one man who refused to be evacuated. And I wasn't uh, so much interested in, uh, uh, in the volcano itself, I was more interested in, in the man who uh, had refused to be evacuated. I wanted to know about the attitude towards death. And of course, my team, two cinematographers and I, we, we, had the, we had the option, should we go in or should we not? And we decided, each one of us independently had to decide we are going in. Uh, because it could have exploded in the next two weeks or two days or in the next 20 minutes. You didn't know. Uh, so in, in this case, it was blind lottery which I normally do not do. Um, and of course, the moment we ran out of film, of course it was shot on celluloid, we fled. 
We fled as fast as we could. Um, and it was good, and uh, it turned out that the mountain never exploded. So <laughs> it was very, very strange. Another person from the edge? Yeah, okay. And should this be further. the last question? How yeah, strong? one or two more. No, it's okay. Please go ahead. There was hand up here. Yeah. Um, we have an amazing culture of storytelling in this country and really oral storytelling. Yeah. I wonder, as a storyteller and as a lover of stories yourself, do you partake in storytelling by a campfire or next to the fireplace? Uh, I'm not enough at campfires, but I listen very, <laughs> I listen very well to, to Irish people talking to me. I, I remember decades back, and I still remember the man, a shepherd, who actually also spoke Gaelic, which I found miraculous. And I, it's, I ask him to say, speak in Gaelic to me. I try to understand anyway. He switched to, to English, and, and he would speak about uh, an, an incredible storm the year before, and we were four miles inland, and he said um, the, the water and the waves and, and the mist of the ocean was blown inland, the salt water, and he grabs down and like, like uh, with his hand like a sheep, shows me how the sheep had to, to eat uh, grass that was salty, and he puts it in his mouth and and nibbles on it, and he said the entire grass was tasted salty and spits it out and continues talking about the storm. And I loved him for that. <laughs> you see, this, this is real storytelling. And, and of course, uh, uh, you are in a country blessed with poetry, blessed with literature, and uh, I find it totally understanding, understandable that in, in uh, very early history, uh, the poets very apparently declared a king legitimate because a poet would pro proclaim the king as being uh, the, the new authority. Today we have the pope, or, or let's say in medieval times, the pope in Rome who had to declare uh, the emperor or the king legitimate. It was the poets. And uh, you have such a wonderful amount of, uh, of poetry and your country has been inviting to, to the poets. And uh, you know what? Uh, I will spend the next 12 days or so going uh, around in your country. I will do it not on foot, but in a car. <laughs> Maybe a little bit out in the west on, on foot. But um, behind, very deep behind all this, uh, is, is a lingering thought, which doesn't affect me very deeply, but I, I, I keep thinking, what do I do if I were forced into exile? I'm not in exile in the United States. I went there because I enjoy to be in Los Angeles. I enjoy to be marry, being married there. But um, uh, there, is, there are some disquieting things going on. What could be the last resort? Where would I go in, into exile? 
I would not go to Siberia where my wife comes from. I would probably not return to Bavaria. I don't know why exactly, but I, very far back uh, in my mind is it might eventually be Ireland. So, good night, good evening.